I have a, a journal here that every time I traveled overseas, um, I would write what was happening and, and what I, I, I felt. I said, I find this sad, pathetic, but ironic. Not only a few nights ago did we track down and kill a man as he ran home trying to avoid us, maybe to survive, maybe just to live another day. And there his wife and his children saw him die. Are our actions justified? How many more terrorists have I just created? I killed their dad. I just made a family of terrorists, didn't I? I don't know. How is this going to turn out? Did I just make the wagon wheel roll just one more time? On our very first mission, we shot this man running back into his home. I don't know what to do. I don't know if this is right. I don't know where morality is in war. Today, we delve into the depths of military valor, the harsh realities of conflict, and the challenges faced on our own borders. Our guest is none other than Tim Kennedy, a name synonymous with courage and resilience. Tim Kennedy's life story is a tapestry of achievement. Both a distinguished Green Beret sniper and a UFC headliner, Tim's journey is a testament to the power of resilience, discipline, and versatility. When war breaks out, Tim runs toward danger to help. As a former Special Forces operator, he's been in the thick of the action, serving with distinction in Afghanistan. His firsthand experiences in this tumultuous region, particularly during the critical moments of the U.S. pullout, offer a unique and sobering perspective on the complexities of modern warfare and the consequences of foreign policy decisions. As the co-founder of Save Our Allies, Tim evacuated thousands of people from war-torn Afghanistan, Ukraine, and most recently, aided in the safe exit of American citizens from Israel under Hamas attack. Tim's an entrepreneur and a passionate advocate for individual liberty, but Tim's service to our nation doesn't end overseas. His work at the U.S.-Mexico border has exposed him to a different kind of conflict, where the struggles of migration, border security, and human tragedy unfold daily. Tim has witnessed atrocities that challenge the conscience and has stories that shed light on the human cost of these crises. In today's conversation, we not only honor Tim's military achievements, but also confront the hard truths he's encountered in war zones and at our border. We'll discuss the lessons learned from Afghanistan, the bravery, the sacrifices, and the painful realities of a war that has shaped a generation of soldiers. Join us as we explore the life of a man who's faced adversities most can only imagine, and how those experiences have shaped his views on leadership, national security, and the moral obligations of our nation. Tim Kennedy, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ben. Looking good. So uh, let, let's talk about, now there's so much going on, it's hard to know where to start. Maybe the conflict in Israel, you're obviously making the rounds about the conflict in Israel. You're on Joe Rogan talking about the conflict in Israel. You're actually on the ground in Israel trying to help get people out in the early days of the conflict. What was that like? It was, it was horrific, frankly. Um, yeah, I, I, I've been in special operations for nearly 20 years and, um, you know, from ISIS to Al Qaeda to Taliban, I unfortunately have have seen the, the terrors of what this species can do to each other. Um, this this was something entirely different. This, you know, go, going to some of the kibbutzes and talking to the police and hearing the stories of the things that they saw, seeing the videos and seeing the photos, um, you know, as we're trying to find Americans that were missing, the... It, indescribable horrors occurred there and um and it's something that's not being reported something that's not being talked about it, it was it was profoundly evil the things that they did to those people so you know since you were actually on the ground there and since you've come back and, and been in the media talking about this sort of stuff it is amazing the narratives that have taken place around the conflict 
the, the attempt to establish moral equivalence between what Hamas and, by the way, many civilians in Gaza did. I mean, civilians were crossing that border and taking part uh, in, in the massacre and taking part in the atrocities. The attempt to create moral equivalence between what Hamas did and what Israel is doing in the Gaza Strip is astonishing. Now, I can see that as a commentator, but you obviously have the military expertise and military experience. You've been in these situations. What exactly is it that Israel is facing in the Gaza Strip? Why are they doing what they're doing and how are they pursuing that? Uh, well, um, taking out an insurgency is historically nearly impossible. And um, what we see Israel trying to do right now is identify military targets that are in Gaza, that are the Hamas terrorist organization, that not just, you know, we, we don't want to just leave October 7th as the standalone thing that has happened because because that's intellectually inaccurate and historically wrong. Um, Hamas has a long history of attacking Israel um, in countless occasions, um, you know, not, not just intifadas, not just big assaults and attacks and the things that we saw on October 7th and terrorist attacks. But it has been a constant um, execution of this long plan of trying to incite Israel to lose in a propaganda battle. Um, Israel is trying to do the right thing. They're just doing it the wrong way. And this is just my opinion. They are trying to limit as many civilian casualties in a group with a group that are intentionally hiding in and amongst civilians in a populace that frankly is sympathetic to Hamas. When Hamas was returning from the attacks into to the Palestinians into Gaza, what we saw was rejoicing in the streets. They were they were excited about the success of the attack. They were getting constant updates inside of Gaza. And you can find the videos. You don't have to trust my word. You can go and look at the Palestinians rejoicing at the death of 1,400 people, taking now you know 200 captives. The, the rape, torture, and murder of, of children and Holocaust survivors, it, 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 it's atrocious. And Israel now has to go block by block, door by door, fighting an embedded insurgency. And um, they're trying to do it in a way that is acceptable to the world. And that's the problem right there, Ben. You know, if you read, um, you know, there's a ton of literature now that the, the question is the new rules of war. We're not going to be able to fight the state on state thing that we so desperately have been wanting to fight. You know, the last time America was truly a dominant uh, aggressor in a war was in World War II. Um, since then, we have not really con- decidedly won any any wars. And it's because of what's happening here in Gaza. It's a perfect example of it. They're not fighting by the rules that Israel is fighting by. They're hiding in hospitals. They're hiding behind women. They're hiding behind um, they're intentionally taking their military equipment and positioning it at schools. These are the things that terrorist organizations and insurgencies do. And these are not the things that proper military do, do, would do. So it's it's a hard battle. And every time that you try to take a block, you're, of course, going to incur civilian casualties because the bad guys are hiding with the civilians intentionally and using them as human shields. So anytime an Israeli soldier tries to move to try and find an insurgent, of course, there's going to be a civilian casualty because that's what Hamas wants. And that then continues this revolving door of propaganda. So it's it's a real tough situation that Israel's in right now. We'll get to more with Tim Kennedy in just one second. First, from maintaining control of your assets to easing the burden on your loved ones, an estate plan can ensure your family stays prepared and protected. If you're looking for a way to set up your estate to offer financial benefits and more, 
you need to check out Trust and Will. This stuff is really, really important. Traditional estate planning, it can cost thousands of dollars. Many one-size-fits-all solutions might not capture, you know, all of the important details in the life that you've actually built. With Trust and Will, you can protect your legacy from the comfort of your own home, starting at just 159 bucks. They've simplified the process of creating and managing your will or trust online, from finding out what's right for your family to finalizing documents with the notary. My wife and I, we've rewritten our will several times, primarily to make sure our kids are taken care of should, God forbid, something happen to us. I don't want the state deciding what to do with my kids. That sounds horrifying. Well, writing your will protects you. It protects your kids. It can be incredibly expensive, tedious, but trust and will makes it easy and affordable. Every will or trust is crafted to be state-specific and customized to your specific needs. For example, trust and will will cover your care wishes, nominating guardians, final arrangements, and power of attorney. Trust and Will has earned an overall rating of excellent with thousands of five-star views on Trustpilot. So secure your assets and protect your loved ones with Trust and Will. Get 10% off plus free shipping of your estate plan documents by visiting trustandwill.com slash Shapiro. That's 10% off plus free shipping at trustandwill.com slash Shapiro. So obviously you fought in counterinsurgencies in Iraq and Afghanistan. What, what exactly should Israel be, do, be doing here? Because when you look at sort of traditional counterinsurgency tactics uh, or f- operations against insurgencies, and going back to the Malayan War with the British Army, I mean, the, the basic idea was that you kind of take certain areas, you clear them, you hold them, and then you expand the radius outward of safety. But what do you do when there are literally no allies in a particular area, and yet the world is clamoring for you to be the only one who's pursuing any sort of humanitarian end? There's no clamor for, for Hamas to pursue anything humanitarian. There's a baseline assumption that they will not. They don't, not only don't, don't they care about the civilians, they want the civilians dead. And yet the, the hue and cry from the world is that Israel should care about the Hamas uh, Hamas sympathizers who are, who are in the, the Gaza Strip. And obviously, no one wants to see children killed. No one wants to see women killed. Nobody wants to see any of this stuff except for Hamas. But that puts Israel in a very difficult situation. I mean, uh, what, what's amazing to me is you watch the footage and you see these aerial footage of, of Israel bombing targets and you see buildings wrecked you know, for, for miles around and people are, are suggesting that this is some sort of attempt to kill as many people as possible. The, the last statistic I saw is that for every bomb that Israel was dropping, it was killing about 0.8 people which is an extraordinarily low ratio. Israel's telling people to clear out of these areas. They're essentially hitting infrastructure in a lot of these areas before they send their own guys in on, as you say, a block-to-block basis, attempting to clear these areas and putting them at risk. I mean, Israel has complete air superiority. If they wanted to, they could simply bomb Gaza into the Stone Age or forward into the Stone Age, as the case may be morally. Um, but but what, what, what exactly would you be doing if you were in charge of counterinsurgency operations in, in this sort of situation? Hey, you, you said something incredibly accurate and um, understated. You say they have no allies there. Uh, I, I think we have to unpack that in a little bit and expound on what does no allies mean. Um, so in an insurgency, you have the active fighter, right? Um, call them whatever you want. You know, like if you walk down to a pro-Palestine or free Palestine rally, you know, you're going to hear freedom fighters and, you know, uh, fighters in Antifada, blah, a, a bunch of liars. Um, what, what you have is terrorists and then terrorists have a pretty sophisticated network of enablers, supporters, advisors, communication, um, observers, and all of this network supports the warfighter. So for every insurgent that is carrying a gun and going and doing war, you're going to find anywhere from 10 to 20 support personnel behind that single warfighter. Now, if you look at the, the dense population, that is Gaza. And you look at the number of people that are in there and the the, the family relations. Uh, so if you started building out a family tree, 
to one freedom fighter and you then build out his support network with um people not 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 are just um aware but complicit in the activities of this terrorist use the mesh network that almost connects every single person there to being a direct supporter of the terrorist and you're like wait a second tim there, there's a whole bunch of, of, of women and children that live there yeah, man, we're talking about an insurgency. An insurgency does not wear a uniform. An insurgency does not say it has to be a military age man. When you look at the things that they're that they're educating the young children in Palestine, they are radicalizing them just like they do in Africa, just like they do um, in Eastern Europe. They get them as young as they possibly can, preferably illiterate. And they start feeding them these radical ideas of a violent extremist organization. And by the time these are eight, nine years old, they are actively supporting in an active support role, the war fighter, the terrorists. And so being able to use the, the moral high ground of say, like, this is, this is an actual terrorist. You know, it's going to be a, a man between 18 to, to 45 years old is just totally false. It's absolutely wrong. And, and clearly factually inaccurate, you know, no, nobody's more dangerous than an 11 year old with an AK. And they have been training these young men and women how to fight. So, you know, like not only do they have no allies there, in truth, the vast majority of the Palestinians living in Gaza are directly supporting, not just philosophically, but militarily, the terrorist organization that is Hamas. So what do you do in a situation like that? I mean, obviously, that's actually nothing new in the Middle East. We saw during the Iran-Iraq war, the Iranian government literally giving golden keys or, or metal keys to kids and sending them out to the front lines of the Iran-Iraq war to get killed. I mean, we're talking about like 9, 10, 11-year-old kids using child soldiers and this sort of thing. As you mentioned, it's not uncommon in Africa either. It's something that boggles the Western mind and something that we can't understand because we would never treat our own children in this fashion. And we don't want to see other people's children treated in this fashion either. But that, as you say... It puts militaries all over the world in an unwinnable situation. The American military was in unwinnable situations in Afghanistan and Iraq, specifically because of similar tactics that were being used. And this is sort of the gap between civilian leadership and military leadership. Civilian leaders are constantly you know, kind of projecting their own perceptions about the world into the world of the military and then assuming that that's reality. And, and it's not reality. And so they're creating rules of engagement for members of the military that are putting members of the military in dire jeopardy, in actual risk, in, in positions to be killed or wounded very, very seriously. This goes all the way back to the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And long before that, the United States setting out rules of engagement that make it incredibly difficult for our military to operate. And this is true for Western militaries in general. So what exactly should a military, when confronted with this sort of situation, do? Is there anything that, that can be done other than what Israel is doing, given the fact that Again, there's two constraints. In an unconstrained world, the military could do what it would want, and it would look a lot like the caveman, horrific warfare that we saw throughout all of human history up until the post-1945 era, which would include enormous numbers of civilian casualties, obviously. And, and it might end wars more permanently. It would also be a lot uglier. I think one of the things that we've done as a society is we've made war more palatable in some sort of weird way by saying, well, it's a humane war. And so this has simultaneously made it easier for us to get in war and harder to get out of it. Uh, easier to get in because it's humane. And hey, not, not as many people are going to get damaged. So we're, we're pretty casual about, okay, fine, let's just get involved in a war. And then two, hard to get out because it turns out it's very difficult to win a war with those constraints. But the, the, the two constraints are sort of, one is the, the military's moral constraint. We don't want our men and women in the military 
having to do this sort of stuff. And number two, civilian constraints, which is the civilian disconnected from the military situation on the ground. So under these circumstances, can the West ever win another war? What does victory even look like? No, I, I think in the current um, political climates and the civilian understanding of the violence that is war, we are not equipped or capable of winning war. Um, you know, the the, the the definition of a war that Americans see, you know, like you want to see a guy in a gray uniform with like a, a swastika on his shoulder, right? And like SS on his collar. And like, that's such a visible bad guy. He was gassing innocence and, like you know, he's doing these evil, deplorable things. Uh, that's just not the case. Now we're fighting non-state actors. We're fighting corporations. We're fighting um, groups that are funded by state actors via proxies. We're fighting in intentional civilian areas. None of these things we can accept as forms of war. You know, I, I just tweeted a couple of minutes ago that we are at war with Iran. Um, Iran, Iran is using proxies. Iran is using contractors. Iran, are they're flying drones and dropping bombs on America. There's no doubt about it. We know that's happening. But we, as you can see, if we went down to Congress right now, let's see who's talking about war. None of them. Not that I want to be in any more wars. I'm anti-war. You know, I'm kind of avoiding your questions like, what do we do? That's the question that we've been asking for 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 decades now, Ben, is what do we do? Um, if it's okay, I'm, I, I have a, a journal here that every time I traveled overseas, um, I would write what was happening and, and what I, I, I felt. Um, there's just two sentences at the, at the end of an entry on 11 July, 2006. I was in Iraq and um, we we're trying to fight an insurgency and we had gone to a bomb maker's house that night. And um, we got in a gunfight and um, we had killed a, an insurgent. I said, I find this sad, pathetic, but ironic. Not only a few nights ago did we track down and kill a man as he ran home trying to avoid us, maybe to survive, maybe just to live another day. And there his wife and his children saw him die. Are our actions justified? How many more terrorists have I just created? I killed their dad. I just made a family of terrorists, didn't I? I don't know. How is this going to turn out? Did I just make the wagon wheel roll just one more time? On our very first mission, we shot this man running back into his home. I don't know what to do. I don't know if this is right. I don't know where morality is in war. Um, we've been asking this question for a really, really long time. There is my strategic military brain that says, you build out every, this target list. You identify every single supporter. You, you identify um, who is funding them. You identify the enablers, you in, in, identify um, every level of the support echelon that goes to the terrorist organization, and then you wipe them off the, the face of the planet. Um, that would look like pushing Gaza into the sea. That would turn that place into a parking lot, specifically there. Um, with Iran, that would be, Iran is, is, would, would have very similar tactics in where they have their military and strategic positions uh, within the country. It would be unpalatable for Americans to have a war like that. Um, so the two, two answers are what we would have to do, American Americans and Congress would never accept for us to actually see a legitimate win. And there's, and if we did that, I don't think the world would ever accept America as the leaders of the free world again. 
We'll get to more with Tim Kennedy in just one second. First, the October 15th tax deadline, it's long come and gone. I know many of you might be dreading the stress of filing your taxes. I get it. Filing your taxes can be a long, excruciating process. But if you fail to file, you'll start piling penalties on your tax debt. It'll ruin your life. So instead of doing that, why not check out Tax Network USA? The team at Tax Network USA has a track record of success. They've reduced tax debts for numerous clients, totaling over a billion dollars. Whether you're looking at a $10,000 or $1 million tax debt, they can help you with a settlement. It doesn't matter if you haven't filed in a year, five years, even a whole decade. Tax Network USA is equipped to secure the best settlement for you. Their expert attorneys and tax professionals can help resolve all tax cases, no matter how they started. Don't let tax debt control your life any longer. Take that first step to resolving your tax issues by visiting taxnetworkusa.com slash Shapiro. That's taxnetworkusa.com slash Shapiro. Again, you don't want to fall behind on those taxes and not get it fixed. Tax Network USA can help you fix all of that. Get your life back on track. Go to taxnetworkusa.com slash Shapiro today to get started. So the, the, there is one possible alternative that I'll suggest you and I want to get your take on it, which is the thing that no one wants to do, which is extremely long-term occupations in which you just assume that there's going to be a certain number of casualties. And that's just going to be the reality from here on in. And that was true in Afghanistan. It was true in Iraq. It's true in the Gaza Strip. The reality is that, you know, America, we, we, don't, we don't like to think of ourselves as an empire. The reality of, of the world is that the British Empire was what kept any level of world peace throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. And it's American empire since 1945 that has kept any level of world peace since then. You know, people like to throw away the examples of Germany and Japan, but the reality is we still have air bases in Germany and Japan. I mean, the fact is that we have military bases literally everywhere all over the planet. And the places where those military bases tend to be are the most secure places in their, in their respective countries. The, the, the kind of bizarre choice that, that we are faced with is a, is a utopian world in which the United States retreats within our own borders and things don't get worse. That's not going to happen. So what's going to happen is the United States reverts to a, a sort of defensive posture, which we, are, which we could do because we, we do have uniquely amazing geography. We're surrounded on two sides by ocean, on one side by Canadians and on the, on the southern side by Mexicans, which is a pretty good position to be in strategically. But Everything's going to get a lot more expensive. Everything's going to get a lot more chaotic. You're going to see a lot more human rights violations. If you don't like the stuff you see on your TV now, wait until the American influence is gone. And if you don't like the prices that you're paying right now at the grocery store, wait until those multiply by three, four, five times because all of the supply chains get broken due to the lack of dominance of the American Navy, which is really what guarantees the freedom of the seas. That's choice number one. Things are much more expensive and much bloodier outside of our borders, but we have the moral purism to be able to say that we're staying within our own borders and we have nothing to do with any of it. And then choice number two is a very aggressive American posture. Doesn't mean we get into wars uselessly or that we don't assess the costs and benefits to be gained by getting into wars. But there is a core recognition that once, if, if you want a place to be stable, that is not going to be a four-year commitment. That's not going to be a 10-year commitment. That's going to be maybe a 40 or 50-year commitment. I remember when John McCain was mocked for saying this with regard to Iraq in 2008. We were like, that's crazy. He's saying a 100-year commitment to Iraq. And he would say, well, yeah, we had a 100-year commitment in, in Germany and Japan, and those places are now quiescent. I mean, the reality is you probably have to occupy those places for longer, which maybe is an argument for not getting involved in those places in the first place. I can, I can certainly see that argument. But there are going to be military conflicts where to even guarantee our own economic and strategic interests, we are going to have to be involved there. And that's going to require some long-term thinking from politicians that they refuse to do especially if they won't do the short thing. The short thing is the ugly thing. And the long thing is, is, is an unpalatable thing to the American people. So that's the only available alternative. In Israel, I think, by the way, that the long-term alternative is the only alternative available. 
because they're not going to do the ugly and horrific thing that you're talking about, you know, pave Gaza, push it. They don't want to do that, and they're not interested in doing that. Well, the only alternative is going to be what it was before Oslo, which is essentially a long-term occupation, military occupation of these areas. Hopefully they get some sort of help from the Saudis and, and the UAE and the Egyptians or whatever. But they're going to be there for the long haul, and that is not going to be cured anytime soon. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, you know, for, for, for America to thrive, for us to be able to have commerce, we have to have security and stability in the region that we are trading with. And um, it's it's one of the many reasons why we have loved having Israel there since 1948. Um, they, they, they have provided a democracy and stability within the region that just has, had not existed in a really, really long time. You know, when you look at Germany and you look into Eastern Europe, you know, obviously we have bases in Poland. Um, in 1945, when we started setting up our, and we have gigantic bases in Germany, uh, not just strategic, but, you know, if you're going to um, Rammstein or Launchstuhl or Bombholder, you know, the largest, most complex hospital in the world is in Germany, and it's an American hospital. And, um, and it's staffed by the most brilliant surgeons on the planet doctors within the American military. The positions of our military bases in Africa now, also strategic, but also um, like geographically strategic, but also in positions that try to force stability and security in that region, which is a really difficult thing to do. What I hate is that our young men and women are the ones that have to go over and sit there or fight. Those are the two options. We have to go sit on ground and hold ground, or we have to go and fight for ground to keep back these radicals. Um, and there's no skin in the game with any of the politicians. You know, currently in Congress, we have the lowest military service records of in the history of both the House and Congress, people that have served in the military that are now serving in, in a political capacity. And they're and they are not on a whim, but they're they're casually and not flippantly, but I think without fair regard, sending American or girls and boys out to fight these wars. And um, war is terrible. I, I don't want to be in wars, and but I do want peace in the world. And you know, I, I do agree that I don't know another or better way to do it besides us forcing security and stability in a region, and that is us physically being there. So that takes us to Afghanistan. So obviously, you fought in Afghanistan. The collapse of Afghanistan, I think, is the worst foreign policy disaster for the United States, certainly of my lifetime. It's a, it's a, it's a, it was a debacle. Uh, the, the, the Biden non-plan to basically leave the place to destroy all possible supporting forces, uh, ability to, to even call in airstrikes by, by the Afghan military, it was disgraceful. We left behind tens of thousands of people who who actively were aiding the United States' efforts in Afghanistan in the first place. Turn it back over to the people who had provided safe harbor to al-Qaeda in, in, in the first place. You, know, you were attempting to get people out in the middle of all of this. What was that like? And then I want to get your overall take on, on the situation in Afghanistan. Why it degraded? Could it have been stopped? Oh, man. Um, you know, when, when President Biden said that we we're going to be leaving Afghanistan, you know, I, I, I had this expectation of, okay, we're going to keep military, you know, whoever controls the outer perimeter and controls everything that's inside of that perimeter. And uh, so I thought, you know, we, we would keep our military bases in place and we'd start um, a slow, intentional downsizing of the military footprint on the ground. And um, 
then when they announced, they literally proclaimed to our enemies that we're just leaving. And here's the date that we're going to leave. We're going to be abandoning these bases, these very strategic, strategically placed bases with a bunch of equipment that is very useful for war. Um, and you know, it's going to take years for the Taliban, if, the, if, if Taliban even wants to, to try and take over that land. Myself and all of my friends were like, are they idiots? Like, who's talking to these people? This is going to happen in, in weeks. Um, we were also wrong. It happened in days. You know, it, it, and it was a rapid as fast as a vehicle could drive into Afghanistan from those neighboring countries was as fast as they, as Taliban took land. They barely had to fight. They bar- and, and, and the Afghan army's defense, they, even though they had been trained and they had been equipped, um, they have never fought without us. You know, we had always advised and, uh, and in some instances accompanied them. And, you know, we, in this instance, we just said, Hey, good luck, you know, buena suerte. And, uh, the Taliban rapidly took the most strategic portions, took our military bases, repurposed all the military equipment that was there to give them even more momentum to take even more land, even faster, uh, so by the time you get to Kabul uh, in mid-August of 2021, it's completely surrounded by the Taliban. The Taliban there, they're using night vision that they took from us, M4s that they took from us, M249s and 240s that they took from us, ammo that they took from us. And they are the most equipped that they have ever been in the history of the Taliban, and they now have the last place for us to get the remaining Americans and our allies out of the country, they have it completely surrounded. Everybody remembers the videos and photos of people holding on to, to, to wheel wells as the landing gear as a plane, a C-17 was taking off and watching people fall to their death. Um, honestly, thankfully that they fell because the other option was them to, to freeze to death or be torn apart by the wind speed of that aircraft the human body just can't take it. Um, so the 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 ninety or thirty second fall is was far more humane than what they're about to experience. Then you have people trying to get out. You have women taking their babies and just passing them forward on the the heads and hands of other people. They have women taking babies and trying to throw them over the walls, un, unaware that on the far side of the wall is concertina wire. The babies are falling into the concertina wire and bleeding out. You know, you see the Taliban executing people. So after they, they set up this outside corridor, every route into the Hkaya was controlled by the Taliban. You know, so if a special forces commando, an Afghan soldier that served with the American special forces, if he's trying to come in, they have a list of names. And if you're trying to hide your passport or all of the things that would get you onto the base, those are also the things that will get you killed if you're caught with them by the Taliban. So the Taliban is executing people on the hoods of their car. You know, they're doing it in front of Americans to make sure Americans recognize that they're powerless in this instance. And uh, the, the initial footprint on the ground was a small contingent of uh, British military. And that's when the base got overrun. Then America came back. We launched the 82nd Airborne and we bumped up the Marines that were on the ground. We retook the air the the airstrips. And when I got on the ground, it was the most dissimilar to any 
airport that you can imagine, right? There's broken cars, there's burnt out cars, there's dead bodies, there's trash everywhere. And this is where we're about to do the largest evacuation of military personnel since Dunkirk. You know, like th this, it was absolutely bonkers, Ben. I mean, like you talk about Wild Wild West, that was savage. We'll get to more with Tim Kennedy in just one second. First, if you're a business owner and you need to grow your team, you have a perfect gift available to you, a smart hiring solution, Zip Recruiter. Right now, Zip Recruiter is giving it to you for free at ziprecruiter.com slash Ben Guest. Now, you might be asking how Zip Recruiter is a gift to people who are hiring. I'm glad you asked. Zip Recruiter uses smart matching technology to identify the most qualified people for a wide variety of roles. Zip Recruiter will let top candidates know when they're a great match for your job and encourage them to apply. The bow on top? If you see a candidate who's a great match for your job, ZipRecruiter makes it super easy to send them a personal invite so they are more likely to apply. Get your hiring wrapped up quickly with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter will get a quality candidate within day one. Just go to this exclusive web address right now and try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash Ben Guest. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-N-G-U-E-S-T. ZipRecruiter is indeed the smartest way to hire. We've been using it here at Daily Wire for years ourselves. You should do the same. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Ben Guest to get started. So I, I want to talk about Afghanistan in a couple of layers. One is the strategic failure and one is the tactical failure. So sort of the grand strategy for Afghanistan originally was that there would be an occupation, that this would eventually transition into a democratic Afghanistan. That was obviously an ideological failure by the Bush administration and then follow on by the Obama and, and Trump administrations as well as the 20-year war in, in which the, the basic idea that this, this tribal country that had never had a centralized government was somehow going to resolve into a centralized government democratically ruled, that, that, was, a, that was a bizarre idea at the, at the very outset. If you were going to pursue something like that, that requires, as we were talking about earlier, decades of commitment. It requires you to basically provide the entire force operation in the entire country in order to ensure safety, which is the prerequisite for any emerging democracy, is that you actually have to make sure that people aren't getting killed for, quote unquote, voting the wrong way. The reason the Taliban were able to take over the country so quickly is because everybody knew the Americans were going to leave. The Afghan army was going to dissipate. And if you were caught supporting the Afghan army, they were going to shoot you and shoot your family. And, and so everybody immediately was welcoming the Taliban in because what other choice do you have? You know, so, so there's that strategic failure that I wanted to get your take on. And then there's the tactical failure, which is this idea that they could literally say to the Afghan military, whatever was left of it, that they were going to withdraw close air support. And this was magically going to transition into safety. Like that was that was totally nuts from the outset. Yeah. The first, the the failure on the Americans understanding and we, we do this so often. You know, we, we, we did it in Vietnam. Um, we did it obviously in Iraq. Um, we never anticipated uh, having to fight in a way that we had to fight to see success. And we also failed to understand the culture. Um, not all cultures are created equal. You know, an American using the lens of the Western idea of capitalism and democracy and this beautiful constitutional republic that we live in and thinking that other people are capable of that. There are some cultures that are not capable of that. Not culture, not all cultures are created equal. There are cultures that gave human sacrifices of little children or prevented other people from having children or, um, you know, forced people to cover their entire body and then beat them in the street when they when they don't do what they're supposed to do. 
Not all cultures are created equal, but then we think that this culture that we are at war with is going to accept the ideas that we want them to have to see the democracy in this area to provide the security and stability that we want to have there, but still can't understand that they're not capable of it. It's so sad that we're so ignorant in recognizing, and it's it's altruistic of us to be like, oh, all humans are equal. Like it says so in, in our beautiful founding documents. You know, like we all are created equal. We might be created equal, but from that point forward, things can change within a society, within a culture. And the knowing and seeing the things that that these people will do to each other, um, they're not going to be able to have the democracy that we so desperately want them to have. That was the first failure is us being too dumb and too entitled and too proud to and and too human, too American to know that Afghanistan will never be able to handle real democracy in a centralized, organized government. Just not possible. Then on the, the strategic side, you know, um, Afghanistan has lots of value. Um, there, there are minerals there that are now being mined by China. Um, you know, it's it's in a position where it's buffering the southern portion of Russia from access into the Middle East, which is useful. Um, obviously, it's immediately adjacent to Iran, um, which is useful from a military perspective. And we knew that it would be very useful for us to have that piece of ground on that, that area controlled and secure and stable um, for us to be able to influence positively neighboring countries and to the north and to the west, you know, keep our since we have left, as, as we can see, Iran has just been going insane with supporting, financing, and pushing every single limit. And that has really escalated since 21, um, since they, they, they knew that now all of our gigantic bases, Bagram, Kandahar, Kabul, those are all gone, right? Like, what do they have to fear to the east? Nothing. Before, they, they were scared in multiple directions, right? We They had Iraq to the west and Afghanistan to the east. Now Iran's like, bro, we barely got people in either one of these places now that can affect anything on us. It's uh, lame. So, you know, the, the other hot conflict that, that we're seeing in the world right now uh, is the is the conflict in Ukraine, and there, there are a wide variety of perspectives on what the United States should be doing in Ukraine. Uh, you know, obviously, I think that the the Ukrainian offensive has, by all accounts, stalled out at this point. I, I think that it was a noble mission to prevent Ukraine from falling to Vladimir Putin's invasion. By the same token, everybody knows what the end of this war looks like, and so the only question is how you get to the end of that war, which is Russia retaining large parts of the Donbass as well as Crimea. Ukraine being given security guarantees by the West to prevent another similar invasion by Russia. In terms of America's warfighting machine, I mean, the fact is that this has been a fairly cheap spend. I know there's been a lot of talk about how much money we're spending in Ukraine, but the reality is that the, the American military budget is hundreds of billions of dollars. And, and to completely degrade Russia's military capacity in the way that the Ukraine has been able to degrade that military capacity over the course of a year and a half without any American casualties, if you, if you could have said, you know, 10 years ago, here's the trade, $100 billion and Russia's military capacity is wildly degraded and no American casualties. That seems like a fairly solid trade. With that said, it's pretty obvious at this point that there's just a World War I line and that line is not going to move very much in either direction from here on in. What do you do about Ukraine? What do you think is the, is the situation there? 
mean, I already think we have mission success. Um, you know, we, the, the, the uh, I know every Ukrainian is like throwing their hands up in the air. Like they, like how, as Americans, how mad would we be if Mexico invaded and took a large portion of Texas, New Mexico? And we're like, all right, we're just going to leave it to them. You know, like every text would be like, the hell no, we're not, you know, we're going to go out and exterminate every single one of them. You know, when, when I was in Ukraine, you know, we were all the way into like Kharkiv, like we're as far east as you can get into the front lines. And going through French warfare, World War One, French warfare, that those lines are going to be moving maybe feet over decades. Um, that that land, there's mines there. There's drone. Like now, I have like permanent fear anytime I hear a drone flying through the air. Uh, it just makes my butthole pucker. But the uh, you're totally right. That land is 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 going to cost so many lives and so much money to try and take back. Uh, another war that's not going to be a, another type of war, a trench warfare that is not going to be palatable to the West. Um, it was embarrassing. It was a huge success for the West to see Putin lose there. It could have gone anywhere, either way. Like it was really close. When you go to early 22, you know, they were fighting in the streets of Kiev. You know, there were bombs dropping in Lviv on the on the, the border of Poland. Like th this is th the frightening conscience of a NATO country. Um, their neighbor was invaded by an aggressor crossing a sovereign border. And that was a communist army flooding into Ukraine and fighting all the, I mean, midway through the country, passing the river into the capital, you know, pushing, uh, attacking military targets all the way in the West. What should we do is we need to solidify those lines. Um, you know, the, I love diplomatic options. They're way less expensive, both in blood and cost. I would love to see, um, I realize that negotiating with Russia has historically not proven to be very successful in many instances. But uh, like the other thing is we're, we're, if you want that land back, you're putting American boots on the ground in Ukraine. Just there's no other way that it's going to happen. They don't have the they don't have the people. They don't have the bodies to take that land back. We can throw as much money as we want at them. That those lines are going to stay the same, and unless you have American soldiers moving east. So you talked a little bit earlier about the the fact that very few people in the United States have served in the military. Increasingly, very few people even know someone who has served in in the military. So what made you decide to to join up? That's a that's a sad story. Um, I was in a real, real bad moment of my life. Uh, I had every opportunity, incredible parents, you know, uh, educated. I was going to grad school and, um, I had a couple of girls pregnant. I thought I might have AIDS and, um, I was fighting at night in cages to, to literally for fun. And, um, I go to work at a dot com in California and I watched a young woman in a in a polka dot dress walk out to the edge of a of a broken window and look down, I don't know, 50 stories, and then look inside of a building and try to make the decision if it was better for her to burn alive or jump to her death. And um, that 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 woman in the two towers had gone in to work early that day. She went in work early so she could get off in time to pick up her kids from school so they didn't have to walk home from school by herself. And her last act of conscious thought was trying to hold her dress down as she jumped to her death so she didn't burn alive. 
And I was so angry, Ben. Um, I get so angry now thinking back to that poor woman trying to one, make ends meet in the greatest country in the world. And then two, faced with a decision by Muslim radical terrorists, um, forcing her to have to make the toughest decision of leaving her children um, as orphans and her jumping to her death. So uh, I, I went to the recruiter's office that day and tried to enlist. It took, it took a few months, but ultimately 9-11 was the thing, was the catalyst that forced me to special operations. So you and your wife are involved in a lot of charitable projects. One of the projects you're involved in is Save Our Allies. Why don't you tell us about what, what that does and how people can support it? Man, um, not a misnomer. We named it pretty specific. It's Save Our Allies. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not government allies. It's, uh, I, th- I think, people that, that you know, you and I would agree need saving. Um, in Afghanistan, it was Americans. Um, it was Christians. It, they, they, they were orphans that were trapped and the Taliban were going to kill. They were small women, small business owners and entrepreneurs that just would not be allowed to exist. Um, they were gays in Kabul that were going to be burnt alive or pushed off the rooftops. Um, we we're getting those people out. You know, in Ukraine, it was providing humanitarian aid to the to to the last mile as far east as we could in the initial invasion. Um, one, one of my friends, her colleague, was blown up in he worked for Fox, Benjamin Hull, and uh, he got blown up in Ukraine and uh, his people and his crew died. Um, he was dying in Ukraine and Save Our Allies was able to find him and literally sneak him through an invaded war-torn country, peak conflict, get him across the border into a helicopter and into a military um, hospital ha! in Germany, full circle here, and um, and saved his life. You know, then most recently in Israel, getting, uh, you know, there, there's anywhere from 40 to 60,000 tourists that travel to Israel from America. And uh, obviously Christians wanting to go see where Jesus walked and where he was baptized. Um, you know, Jews coming from all over the United States to to go to the promised land and and see the land that was that has been in their their blood from the beginning of recorded history and uh all those people were trapped you know as american and delta and united and and every other person and every other carrier canceled their flights um what was left was us trying to find ways to get these people out um because i i believe that a war was going to escalate way faster than it did in a way i thought it was going to be um a little bit Feistier, a little bit earlier on, it got kind of stable after the attack. Israel doing a great job stabilizing the region. Um, so I was trying to get as many Americans off what I thought was going to be a total battlefield. The last thing that we want, and this is a difference between us and them, is we want our civilians off the battle space so that we can go and do the thing, which is destroy the enemy. Right? Um, that's what we were trying to do. Uh, we were in Sudan during the coup, trying to uh, assist for. Fortunately, the American military, under the leadership of um, General Donahue, created a corridor to get all those refugees out. We have very brilliant special special operations trained people and kind of expeditionary evacuation, extraction of people. And uh, the same thing, the same mechanisms that you use to get somebody out are the same things that you use to get resources in to save our allies uh, does that. 
we try to save the people that need saving in the places that nobody else can save them. What was it, what was it like to enter special operations? Obviously, it's pretty rigorous to, to get into that program. So take us through that a little bit. What was wild? You know, th- this is the beginning of the war. Um, we had had a very long, you know, we Panama and Grenada and small con- conflicts, Desert Storm One, you know, which um, there were. So in the military, in your uniform, you have your unit patch, and then you have your combat patch. The combat patch is the the patch that you get when you deploy with that unit to combat. You could go to every one of the military bases that had combat arms there, and you would very, very, very rarely see any combat patches on anyone's sleeves. We just hadn't been to war. And uh, and the very small group that had were in U.S. Army Special Forces. Those men that had come back, you know, the the, the horse soldiers, there's a monument to them in New York that riding to Afghanistan on horseback into battle. Freaking epic, right? That's Green Berets right there. And um, – those were the men that were now training this little small group of men aspiring to go to war, wanting to go make a difference. And they had just come back to seeing the most cruel form of war that we had seen in a really, really long time. And uh, it was brutal. You, know, you cannot prepare people to go do the worst thing that our species can do to each other without it being very extreme. Um, you know, Definitely not palatable to uh, most people uh, about what training should look like. You know, people died in training. Um, People drowned and froze to death and they got run over by vehicles. And um, there's no other way that you can prepare people for war without doing hard things. So, you know, special forces has once you get selected, you know, you'll have. So in my class, we had four or five hundred guys that went to selection. Uh, that went to special operations preparation course and then ultimately went to special forces selection. And there was 91 that uh, made it to the end and 88 of them got selected. And then that 88 are allowed to go into the Q course, which is a one to two year long qualifying course to train that soldier um, in what the skills that they need to have to be a Green Beret. And, uh, you know, from small unit tactics to guerrilla warfare, conventional warfare, um, learning the language, your target language for that, your area of operation that you're going to go work in, um, you know, share school, being interrogated, um, you know, going to, into concentration camp and, you know, getting the crap beat out of you. These, you know, in the, in the very end, that group of 88 people that were selected, I'm, I'm going to guess maybe 60 made it through, you know, so 60 out of 500. Um, and uh, it's the greatest job in the world. It's the greatest job to go into a place and to give them the thing that Americans value more than anything else, which is sovereignty and freedom, to be able to go into a poor area and help them dig a well, to go into a broken area that has been scared to death, you know, by, by a a VEO cell in, in North Africa and you come and for the first time in their life, they get to have a peaceful night's sleep because you're on the ground there with them. Um, And to, America is such a special place, you know, we, and we really take it for granted how wonderful this country is. Um, my colleagues have time and time again had to go to places where it was the worst on the spectrum of, of humanity. You know, America's way over here and then there's other cultures that are way over here. So then you get to come back and truly appreciate, you know, your, your wife 
never looks more beautiful than when you first come back. Your kids can't be more sweet than the first time that you come back. And it is, it is the most magical thing to, to come back to this amazing place that we go and fight for. So how do you deal in the moment with, with the stresses that you're dealing with on the ground? How do you deal with coming face to face with, with evil? Not, not only the evil of the person you're fighting, but the evil of war itself. How do you deal with that in the moment? And then how do you deal with that later? Because most of us, I mean, obviously, haven't served in the military, never have to come face to face with that sort of stuff and never have to deal with the readjustments or the adjustments in the moment. Yeah, I, I think preparation, uh, no, no surprise here coming out of my mouth that, that hard work and discipline are the two things that, um, you know, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I, I would rather do all of the things to make sure that I'm, I'm a healthy, um, spiritually well, um, intellectually capable, uh, morally strong, ethically founded human so that when I have to go and do my job, I'm making the most rational and just decisions I can in the time. And um, they're terrible decisions. No, Nobody should have to decide if I'm going to engage a machine gun when I know and I, I I know this firsthand as I walked up to a door and the door started starts getting shredded with machine gun fire. My friend Mike Goble shoves me back and saves my life. As we kick open the door, we see a PKM machine gun sticking out of a window. I throw a grenade through the window. Right, that's what you're supposed to do. There's a machine gun that just tried to kill me and Mike. And this is who we're fighting. Surrounding that machine gun were a bunch of women and children. That's how they fight. Like, did I make absolutely the right decision? in everything leading up to that as best that I could with the information that I have. Could I go and pull that grenade back that I just threw the moment that I hear it go off? And the only thing that I hear is the, the, the crying and the anguish of babies and women, of course, but I can't like that's war. And that's the people that we're fighting in cultures that are not the same. Like would I ever take my own family and barricade them around me with a machine gun as people started assaulting? Of course not. Right. But that that's who we're fighting. And so the preparation and hard work and discipline is what enables you to be able to perform in war. And similarly, after, how do you deal with the things that happen in war? I, I think in a really similar way, you know, like me now, um, I'm, I'm still in, uh, obviously, I've been to Iraq, Afghanistan, during the evacuation of Afghanistan, into eastern Ukraine. Um, you know, I've worked on the Mexican border for, for months and months on end. Also, one of the worst things I've ever seen. Man, I love my kids. I go to church. I get an ice bath. I exercise. Right now, unfortunately, I'm in the middle of a three-day water-only fast to, to try and get a bunch of gross stuff out of my body to make sure I'm healthy so I can live long and be there for my grandkids. Um, all of these things, like I'm, be, I'm being a faithful husband. This, this liquor cabinet behind me, this is for guests. I've never touched a single drop of any of the things that are in there, but people send them to me, so I take them and I I share them when I have friends that come over. You know, I try to be the, 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 a, good, a good man. And I think being a good man enables me. Sure, there's pain, and I have friends that I can talk to about it. But those are the things that enable me to deal with the stresses that I experience. And, you know, I, I can cry with my wife. I can get on a flight and, and watch a sad movie, and I'm like crying like a baby. And somebody looks over at this 220-pound burly dude with a square jaw that mostly has killed people his adult life. He's like, what a softy, right? But that's being human. That's that's being a, a good man. And then on the under, other end of that spectrum, you know, if you're not sleeping and you're drinking and you're smoking or you're doing any substances, um, you're fighting with your spouse or cheating on your spouse, those all add 
through your inability to deal with the trauma of your past and the and and life as it is. So now I just try to be good. Folks, our conversation continues for our Daily Wire Plus members right now. If you'd like to hear the full conversation, click that link at the top of the episode description and join us at dailywireplus.com. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.